Thanks for downloading this podcast. It's for personal use only and must not be broadcast, reproduced or used in any form without permission. Tell your friends they can get their own copy wherever they get their podcasts. The most comprehensive coverage of the world's greatest motor race anywhere on the planet. This is Haggerty Radio Le Mans. Hello everybody and welcome to this World Endurance Championship season so far because I'm, I realise that uh, a number of you may not have been following the championship closely and of course Le Mans is a round of the FIA World Endurance Championship. Round four, very different from the three we've had already because of double points on offer and of course it's twice around the clock. Um, a lot of people are here purely for the Le Mans event itself to run this event in isolation uh, but nevertheless teams like Toyota, United Autosports in LMP2 and the GT and Ferrari guys in GT Pro they will be concentrating yes on winning a 24 hour race but also to try and get as many points as possible to keep their WEC championship bubbling. My name's Johnny Palmer delighted to say that I'm joined by my co-commentator from the World Endurance Championship Bruce Jones and uh, Bruce, we're going to be looking back over the next 45 minutes on the season so far. Three races we've had, Spa-Francorchamps, Portimao and Monza, a mixture of race durations as well. And I have to say, from, a, from some of the big teams' perspectives, their seasons might have gone a little better. Really, I'm, talking, I'm thinking about Toyota, admittedly with a brand new car, but to this point, they can't exactly display a glittering record. No, you sort of associate Toyota over the ha- last handful of years of being the gold standard. But uh, just looking at the third of those races alone, um, both of the cars had trouble at Monza. And um, <laughs> the fact is the Alpine has been keeping them very, very honest indeed. Of course, uh, many places we've already will have covered what, what is a hypercar and so on. But that's their first stab at it. And I think we have to remember precisely that it is their first go and making a hypercar work and it's proved difficult for them but you can be sure with the decades of experience they've got in the Toyota Gazoo racing that they will get it sorted but the thing is we're coming up to round number four the big one the Le Mans 24 hours and on the evidence of round number three it's not fully sorted yet so interesting days I'd say Johnny. Yeah, if you're unsure as to where LMP1 has gone and to the fact that we are now calling the top-class hypercar, there's a, a dedicated show, actually, that John Hindoff has done with Stuart Mitchell and with Andrew Cotton from Race Car Engineering elsewhere on the Radio Show Limited Network. Dig out that podcast. And also, uh, 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 together with John and Shay Adam, I've done some Le Mans previews ahead of uh, the big race this year, sort of delving into uh, where we are as far as the teams are concerned. So we'll just talk about the championship. Uh, first thing to mention actually was qualifying because a brand new format employed in 2021, just 10 minute sessions for GTs and then prototypes. And we're back to one driver per car. So there really isn't a lot of time to waste at all in qualifying. Bronze drivers must qualify the GTE AM cars. And Spa, my goodness, at the end of April, start of May, it was pretty chilly that weekend. And the qualifying session started with two bangs, not just one, and red flags because Christian Reed went out in his Proton Porsche and immediately spun and crashed at Radion. That caused a red flag. 
Then, the next time we attempted qualifying, Egidio Perfetti, more or less a carbon copy of the same accident on cold tyres as well. Sadly, that meant the 56 Porsche from Team Project 1 couldn't be repaired and wouldn't run in the race. The 77, they stayed up all night in order for that car to begin the race on Saturday. Kevin Estra qualified his GT uh, RSR 19, the Porsche, a second clear of everybody else, and that was uh, really a, you know, a, a big stamp of his authority and the fact that he's won Spa 24 hours around that place, knows Spa intimately. Toyota's eventually got to the front row, though. In earlier practice sessions, they were a little bit further down the order, but they were obviously saving their single lap speed for that 10-minute qualifying session and locked out the front row. But it was intriguing behind, Bruce, because you remember the start of the race, actually United Autosports on the inside of the second row alongside Alpine and Phil Hansen, led the whole race coming out of La Source. <laughs> yeah, cheeky little one, but why not? The opportunity was there, and Phil Hansen, nothing if not a racer. But, yes, it made both of us sort of look at each other and go, what's going on here? Then, of course, the order settled down, and you expected the Toyotas to get to the front, but basically, it was far from straightforward. And uh, certainly, Alpine Endurance Matport really put on a great show and that's with a car that wasn't created for this series. It's one that was grandfathered. The Alpine uh, A480 they'd used previously, brought up to tech, brought up to spec uh, to race in Hypercar, and it was taking it to the Toyotas. But we thought, hold on, let's see who's going to pit first. Let's look out what the fuel economy is, which, let's face it, has always been a feature of endurance racing. But we did sort of look at the lap times. They were very, very similar to the Toyotas, but uh, just thought, let's wait and see. We expected there to be superior fuel economy from the Toyotas, and so it proved. Yeah, the the fastest uh, lap of the race was actually produced by a Toyota by the end of it, but the the Alpine wasn't that far away. There was... Uh, what uh, 0.9 of a second in it in the end, the 204.8 being the Alpine's best lap. But yes, they kept us waiting. I remember the Toyotas eventually pitting after something like 55 minutes. I never expected a GR010 to quite go that far. And actually the Alpine, as per the regulations, is allowed to put more fuel in the tank than the tank allows. Because as you say, the car was built to... The last set of regulations, 75 litres, I think, is the tank size in the back of that car. And you literally cannot put any more fuel in there. There's not the space underneath the dorsal fin. So they needed to come in uh, short of the Toyotas, uh, having really given them a good run for their money over that first stint. It, didn't, it wasn't exactly plain sailing for the number eight Toyota, though, at that first stop, if you remember, because there's also this rule that the fuel nozzle has to be attached to the car for at least 35 seconds. And the guy on the fuel nozzle pulled it out and then realised they hadn't reached the 35 seconds, tried to go back in again, and Buemi had already pulled away. Um, And then there was this kind of half-hearted moment of, do I go or do I not? And eventually they sent the Swiss back into the race, but it would result in a penalty. And that's sometimes what you get with new regulations, is everybody's still trying to get their minds around them. You can imagine that uh, refueling mechanic was going, no, no, I was um, muscle memory. It just kicked in. I pulled it, pulled it like I had before. But the thing that really struck me, Johnny, you expected the outright pace of the hypercars to still be the equivalent of, to an extent of how it had been when it was LMP1's top class. But the notable thing to me was how much harder these cars were finding it to overtake when trying to lap the P2 cars. It wasn't the performance advantage had definitely diminished and it really required 
a lot more concentration and a bit more planning. But luckily, Spa-Francorchamps, there is space to go and play. Um, but certainly it was another factor for the drivers of the Heber cars to, to consider as they went about their racing. Yeah, well, the, um, the fastest lap of LMP2, um, if I've got this correct, let's have a look. Circuit uh, best laps by category, LMP2. Jean-Éric Verne did a two minutes flat, uh, but that was a record, I beg your pardon. So uh, 204one compared to a 203.9 from the hypercars. Um, and in qualifying, 202.4 was, was Albuquerque's time compared to the eventual time uh, from the 7 Toyota, which was about, well, just shy of two seconds faster. Now, the aim at Le Mans is to get the hypercars producing a 3 minutes 30 lap race pace 325 probably in Heaperpol, which is happening on thursday evening this year nine o'clock start on thursday through till nine thirty local the, the lmp2s uh, really the target there is to to get a three minutes 40 out of them which is significantly slower than they've gone before and in order to do that some weight has been added to the chassis there is also restricted the engine as well um and clearly one or two LMP2 teams not too happy about that situation. But the, the difficulty is, as, as Bruce has just mentioned, if the times are too close, then it proves impossible for a hypercar to then easily lap an LMP2, particularly if the P2 is embroiled in its own battle. We had, I remember, uh, a couple of LMP2s clashing, in fact, and poor old Ben Keating had to pay for that. It was Juan Pablo Montoya in the Dragon Speed car trying to sneak by Roman Rusinov in the G-Drive just before Puon. Three abreast cars never going to work into that double left-hander, and Ben Keating forced out onto the grass and into a huge spin. I'm pretty sure, Bruce, he was leading the class at that point. That seems to ring a bell to me, Johnny. But, you know, as exciting as those moments were, and don't forget, I've just pointed out, Spa's got plenty of space, plenty of places where you can overtake. And coming down to Pujol, there's actually quite a lot of space. But three into two, two into one, it didn't all work. And, you know, really bad luck uh, for Ben there. But, again, spectacular stuff. But I guess people were just sort of bedding themselves down. Can I just sort of swing it back? You were talking about the target time for Le Mans being roughly three minutes 30 for the heaper cars then 3 minutes 40 uh, for the LMP2s. Yesterday, the fastest time in P2 was at 3.31, so almost precisely only two seconds around the lengthy, lengthy Le Mans lap, so that the P2 cars are certainly going rather faster than the organisers perhaps would have been wanting, and that's a lot of them. They're very, very close and competitive. Yeah, hypercar seems to be bang on, but I'm not quite sure what's going on with LMP2, and the, the organisers have already said they will not alter LMP2 pace, so it promises to be interesting for this year's 24 hours. Uh, let's talk about WRT, who have never entered ACO rules racing before, but the Belgian squad kicking their ear off with a home race. Vincent Voss, uh, so excited to be involved. And even though their European Le Mans series campaign has got off to a flyer with two wins, this first round of the season was a big struggle because of what I remember as clutch problems, I think, and at least a couple of visits to the garage for that. They're a big enough team to be able to kind of put round one aside and say it just wasn't our day, aren't they? And, and move on. Oh, absolutely. I, I've watched Team WRT intently, uh, having covered a lot of GT racing over the past you know, half dozen years and more. And precisely that, what they get wrong, they learn 
And they've really got a brain's trust of ex-racers in and among that team. And any team that has Pierre Dudonné deep in its, in its midst, do you think back to he was the guy that effectively uh, helped guide Mazda to its one and only Le Mans win back in 1991? Yes, 30 years ago. That was after he really bringing his driving days to an end. So that level of experience around the team, Thierry Tassin, but Vincent Voss has got his head really screwed on. And um, it was a shame for them they couldn't shine on home ground with those clutch problems. But uh, certainly you felt it was just a matter of time before they did. But flashes of speed from them, but, you know, more clearly to come. Yeah, they would eventually finish as the last car, having completed 127 laps compared to uh, the winning LMP2 car that did 161. So big chunks lost, 35 laps down on the overall leader in the end. Uh, it, it seemed to be going fairly well for Toyota. Yes, the hiccup with the number eight and its first pit stop. But beyond that, the 35 second rule was adhered to with the fuel nozzle. But then, I don't think I was on a break during this point in the race, but the next time I look, the number seven Toyota is in the gravel at Bruxelles, the hairpin right at turn eight. Um, It's run out of brakes. I think it was Kamui Kobayashi at the wheel and ends up in the gravel track causing a full course yellow, Bruce. It seemed very sort of un-Toyota, but it just went to show how hard they were having to push to, to compete with the Alpine and, and later in that race uh, that same car the number seven uh, stopped on circuit had to be re- rebooted and fired up but by then they would dropped back to effectively third place in the hypercar class and uh, they rose no higher so third place for Conway Kobayashi and uh, Jose Maria Lopez victory did go to Buemi Hartley and Nakajima Hartley uh, sorry Buemi taking that fastest lap but the fact of the matter was that Alpine had really, really rattled Toyota's cage because Toyota doesn't normally make these number of errors. But let's just reiterate, it was a learning stage for them. It was their first race with the Heeper car. But uh, as we'll comment over the next couple of races, uh, Portimao and Monza, they haven't got rid of all those gremlins as yet. So, as you say, the Alpine did finish on the lead lap, a minute and seven seconds down. That's the André Negrau, Nicolas Lapierre and Mathieu Vaxivier car. LMP2s as high as fourth place and off the back of a sublime year in 2020 with a WEC championship, an ELMS title and winning the 24 Hours of Le Mans. United Autosports continue where they left off with Phil Hansen. Uh, Fabio Scherer brought in as the new silver-rated driver in Car 22 and Philippe Albuquerque, who'd impressed so much the previous day in qualifying. So United took... The LMP2 victory from the two Jota cars. It was looking very likely that the 28 car would finish second, but Tom Blomqvist had to serve a drive-through penalty after he clashed with Andre Negrau in a frightening moment right at Eau Rouge. Side-by-side contact between the 28 Jota from Tom Blomqvist, who seemingly just hadn't seen the approaching um, hypercar number 36, and they uh, slapped each other uh, on the, in the, 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 the kind of base of the valley there. But amazingly, neither car spun and Tom Blomqvist was penalised for that. So dropped him to third and elevated the 38 Jota car to second position of Roberto uh, Gonzalez um, and Antonio Felix da Costa and Ant Davidson. In GT Pro, while the dominance from qualifying continued on into the race for car 92 and Kevin Estra together with his new teammate, Neil Jarney, 
done all the prototype racing for Porsche, but this was his first time in a GT car, and you wouldn't know it. They managed to win the race from the two Ferraris from AF Corsa, 51 finishing ahead of 52. So Alessandro Pierguidi and James Collado ahead of Daniel Serra and Miguel Molina. And in GTE Am, the first victory of the season going to Francois Perodo, Nicholas Nielsen and Alessia Rivera in the 83 AF Corsa Ferrari. So uh, they were championship victors last year and start their season with a victory. Ben Keating recovering from that spin with Dylan Pereira and Felipe Fraga to second place in the number 33 TF Sport, Aston Martin. So on we move to Portimao and... Can I just throw something in, Johnny? You I think can. we also ought to just mention Corvette Racing making a rare pre-Le Mans visit uh, turned up and it was Oliver Gavin's final race for Corvette Racing as a pro racing driver. He loved having a chance to race at Spa again. And, uh, you know, he's just been absolutely mighty for Corvette racing over not the years, the decades now. And I think that was it was great to have European fans at least getting one final chance. It's not that there were that many allowed in the circuit, of course, uh, but for him to sign out in style. And he was evidently very emotional indeed in a couple of interviews after that 20 year uh, career with Corvette. And part of the reason why Corvette ran at Spa was so that they could generate some data that the ACO can then use in their balance of performance mechanism by the time we get to Le Mans. So we did see a C8R again in a, well, for the first time a C8R, but a Corvette again in a World Endurance Championship race. They're not regular entries, but it makes perfect sense for that car to take part in at least one race. And that car. Uh, becomes the 63 in this year's Le Mans. It stayed in Europe, actually, since that race in Belgium. So uh, it will be added to by the 64 car for the Le Mans 24 hours uh, this year. But at least uh, Corvette have supplied some very useful information in terms of balancing it with the Ferrari and the Porsches in GT Pro class. Portimao has never held a World Endurance Championship race until now. And this year, it has been part of the Le Mans series uh, previously, I think as far back as 2009. But this was a an eight-hour race of Portimao because adopted last year, I think, on the 2019-2020 season, this differing amount of race length. We haven't got the four hours anymore anywhere, uh, but a combination of six and eight hours together with the 24 hours. Now, the qualifying on at, at uh, Portugal always promised to be interesting because there's been so little running around this track, although there was a test session, I think, a matter of weeks beforehand. But if we thought um, Alpine was strong in the Spa race, Bruce, they jumped to the top of the times in qualifying and will lead everybody into the first corner. They did. I like moments in, in, in motorsport history where things go not according to the script, the rule book. We still expected after the hiccups that Toyota had at, Mont- at uh, Spa that they would uh, amend those and get out there. But in terms of sheer pace, the Alpine was doing exactly what the team had hoped it uh, could do. Great to see. And of course, Toyota was thinking, hold on, I know it's an eight-hour race. We've got to win this. This was their 100th WEC appearance and uh, really on form you did expect them to go on and win but uh, it was great to see Alpine going okay if you're going to win it you've got to get in front and we're there for a bit so really good to see but also good to see on an absolutely brilliant track if nobody if anybody hasn't seen a race around Portimao by now go and take a look at the replays it's an epic epic place and the other notable thing as far as the hypercar category is concerned is that there was an additional car in the race, the 709 Glickenhaus 007 LMH, the much-anticipated um, 
uh, first race for the American squad led by um, Hollywood film director James Glickenhaus. And it's been his dream ever since he fell in love with 1960s Le Mans races and uh, the fact that uh, cars that you could recognise from the street would do battle on the roads of Circuit de la Sarte. And he wants to kind of he wants to be a, a kind of Carol Shelby type character where the privateers can take the fight to the, the might of the factory uh, outfits like Toyota. And um, th- this car is incredibly professionally run, but it, it has the flavour of almost turning up with a little transit van and a trailer behind and your race car uh, and rolling it out at Portimao and then subsequently Le Mans as well. It's just it's such a kind of romantic idea and it's now become a reality well the hand was stuck up we want to play lots of manufacturers are sitting back maybe maybe not and Jim Glickenhaus said we're doing this and I think just reiterate the aim with uh, one of the aims of HIPAA car was to reduce the running budget by as much as 80 percent and clearly Jim's a a wealthy individual but he's got this dream he's got this focus the car turned up it had a litany of uh, extra visits to the garage at Portimao but it was, it was improving all the time. And the pace when it was running was impressive. So great to see that in the championship. And what really appeals to me now is in literally since this spring, the number of major manufacturers who are coming back to play and some maybe for the first time at the top level of sports car racing, they're going to be there in 22, 2023. But Jim's already here in 2021. And for Le Mans, two cars, I think it's a phenomenal achievement. It did struggle uh, on the first uh, or the second day of the meeting when we got to the qualifying session, eventually uh, posting an 11th fastest time, a 132.167. So that would put it round behind a number of LMP2 cars. And at times, as Bruce says, race pace w- was impressive, but they were having to fight difficulties with rear tyres um, running at a higher temperature than than they would have wished for and also one or two other niggly problems as well. But this really was a race that they needed to to get through to learn as much as possible and then uh, subsequently they would would be able to get two cars to Monza and all of a sudden that's double the amount of data uh, being received. So uh, just wonderful, really, to get that car out on track. It was uh, Ryan Briscoe, Roman Dumas and Richard Westbrook, the chosen drivers for the first appearance for Car 709. And a bizarre moment about halfway through when Ryan Briscoe was trying to lap a couple of GTE AM cars, a collision was made down into the hairpin right on the uh, the outside of the rotunda there. And uh, unfortunately, three cars having to limp away from the scene uh, with Ryan Briscoe rather red-faced. But uh, they were able to re- repair the car and it would finish eventually with eight hours next to its name and 246 laps completed. Um, in the GT Pro division, it uh, was certainly all about Porsche at Spa, but I still think that the balance of performance is just about right in pro so far in the World Endurance Championship. It's strange that we've had within Ferrari tending to have one stronger car than the other. And likewise, in Porsche's land, it tends to be the 92 that has the better results. But what I'm encouraged by is that clearly Porsche and Ferrari are about right in terms of um, being able to take the fight to each other. Certainly seems to be the case. But at Portimao, through the eight hours, it was noticeable that uh, that the Porsches really started to consume their rear tyres more than the Ferraris did. And their, their pace came at different 
points going through their their various stints but certainly it seemed Ferrari was just a little bit kinder on its rubber and on a circuit where you're working it really pretty hard like Portimao that was to their advantage so victory there to the pair the car that normally is the faster one which is James Collado and Alessandro Piergidi but again nip and tuck in GTE Pro just the two manufacturers uh, for the early rounds of the WEC but always an interesting battle. And in GTE Am, uh, perhaps a surprise for one or two that uh, the Chetilar Racing crew, who are always one of the most enthusiastic teams on the grid, a real family affair, but have struggled for consistently good results. Well, they've started this year's WEC really well, and uh, it's a victory in the second race to take them to the championship lead. Roberto Lacorte. Giorgio Sergiotto and Antonio Fuoco, who may be the secret weapon there, a Ferrari junior driver, uh, managing to take the fight and eventually beat a lot of the, the regular GTE AM uh, good performers like Team Project One, who are former champions. 54A, of course, are finishing third for Thomas Flor, Francesco Castellacci and Giancarlo Fisichella. I think they've been racing as a trio for about the last four or five seasons. So that was a very much a statement from Cetilar Racing of Italy, Bruce. I think they deserve the victory because I think theirs is the best-looking Ferrari. I think it looks <laughs> fantastic in that, in that blue with the thin red, white and green uh, markings around, around its flanks. Their cars look great when they ran the Dallara in P2, but they've found their, their location, their form. And in Antonio Fuoco, anyone who looks at his race record will realise he's a rising star. Mind you, they were helped to take that win, welcome as it was, because Team Project 1... Uh, the Cairoli Perra Perfetti Porsche uh, clashed with the real team Orica, one of the new teams uh, stepping up to the World Endurance Championship, and they picked up a 20-second penalty. So that hurt them. But everyone, I think, was delighted, particularly for Roberto Lacorte and Giorgio Cernayotto, who've just been racing together for so long. And they're, they're, doing, they're out there for victories now. They weren't able to get anywhere near victories in the P2 class. And I guess that's you find your happy zone and for them it's now competing in GTE Am and I think they're a good good addition to that uh, bracket of the championship. The other car that I thought would do uh, fairly well in that race um, and eventually uh, couldn't get to the end was the D-Station Aston Martin we knew something was up in the opening stint for Tomonobo Fuji who's the gold by the way um, in the combination that also includes Satoshi Hoshino as bronze and Andrew Watson the Ulsterman as the silver rated driver but Fuji um, either breaking too late on, on one of the early corners and flat-spotting a tyre, or that tyre, the Michelin, was just never right from the start. But you and I could hear chattering, squealing tyres on a number of occasions, and eventually that car would have to pit. Real, real shame. But yes, that, that problem, we picked it up pretty early. But I just love watching Tom and Ubu pushing on through the field. If there's yeah. a car to overtake, and we definitely got to see that at the following round at Monza, he's on it. And uh, I really enjoy, I think the D-Station racing Aston Martin looks fantastic and big big setback for them there with that, with that blowout. But that, I think Tom and Ubu will just attack everything. So uh, he probably, you know, who knows if he just sort of decided he'd just race on a little bit to see what happened. And unfortunately, everybody outside the car could see what happened when it blew it's always interesting to me uh, which driver is selected as the starting pilot, um, and particularly so for Le Mans, but uh, D-Station always seem to choose their gold-graded driver for the run through the field, so we're guaranteed some overtakes in GTE Am, and that could be very much fun uh, for the first hour, let's say, at Le Mans. 
if Fuji is selected in the treble seven D-Station car of Japan, although it is a TF Sport run machine. So I've left uh, the fastest class to last at Portimao and uh, Toyota, they weren't topped in qualifying, but it did eventually uh, see a 1-2 finish, this result, and it was close at the line, just 1.8 seconds between the two Toyotas. But this was the first time we were introduced to cars the Toyota's being switched around and on a couple of occasions as well. So the team deciding to give instructions to the lead car to move aside and for the seven car, for instance, to overtake for a little while, see whether that would result in the seven car just inching away a little bit. And if it didn't work, they would switch them around again. And from a fan's perspective, I'm not sure necessarily everyone agreed with that, but I can kind of see the logic behind it. It was a strange one, Johnny, in that we expected, I think it was Lopez at the wheel when the number seven got flagged through and he caught up with the number eight sister car and then just didn't really pull away. But uh, I found it a little, little bit bamboozling, um, particularly when it was only the second round of the championship. Mm. But maybe Toyota were feeling their cage was already being rattled by the sheer pace of the Alpine. But uh, the Alpine, as you said, led into that first corner on the opening lap. Um, but they knew, they knew full well that the fuel economy wasn't going to be in their favour, and they ended up not second as they had been at Monza. They ended up in third, but there was nothing in it, and it really came down to the number eight car of Buemi, Hartley, and Nakajima saving fuel. And uh, they didn't have to make a late race splash and dash. But having made the splash and dash, the number seven car, as you pointed out, came right back at them. But I, I'm always slightly uneasy about team orders. So we'll move on to the next race, I guess. <laughs> well, yes, uh, that wasn't necessarily the end of the team orders at Portimao, but. Um, yeah, it got one or two people thinking. There was always, uh, I think, a, a, a kind of written rule at Toyota that into the last half an hour of a race, or certainly the final stint in the LMP1 days, whatever the order was coming out of that final pit stop, it would just be kept then and they would hold station to the finish. I mean, there's always a little bit of a danger uh, when the two factory cars are running at such close quarters as well. Maybe a slight outbreak uh, from the second car could very easily cause a collision. And indeed, if the lead car needs to swerve or dodge a problem, then can the one behind necessarily react? So I always like a, a good distance between two cars if they are running one and two. And um, I think that's ringing loud in Toyota's minds as to, to try and avoid a potential incident. So Monza next on the, the calendar. And uh, this would be in July, and it, it was a weekend, in fact, after the European Le Mans series ran in Italy. Once again, a debut circuit, though, for the modern-day World Endurance Championship, and you wonder, Bruce, where they've been all this time. So much so, Johnny, that I had to double back through the records. I thought I, I could even almost remember the previous one, but clearly I can't. My mind playing tricks on me. Quite extraordinary, but much as... Everyone loves Spa-Francorchamps. I rave about Portimao. Monza provided something different. And um, it certainly, as we saw in the opening laps of the race, provided plenty of overtaking. And you know what? The World Endurance Championship should be racing on the best circuits available and the classic circuits. And across those first few races, they've done precisely that. It was great to have the WEC at Monza. Part of the reason why... They've all been European circuits to this point is, of course, coronavirus. That's rather confining flyaway races where we would normally go to Fuji and to um, to Shanghai. 
There have been races in North America. There have been races in Mexico and Brazil in the past as well. But, uh, yes, the choice of tracks is somewhat limited. But it is brilliant, just like Formula One are doing, to discover uh, a lot of European tracks that haven't necessarily found their way onto the calendar uh, in recent years. And uh, there's been a change again, of course, later on in the season, whereby we won't be able to go to Japan this year. And in fact, a doubleheader at Bahrain is now the arrangement after the 24 hours of Le Mans for rounds five and six to complete the season. So uh, qualifying was the first thing that needed to be successfully completed at Monza. Again, a split session, 10 minutes each. And it would be, to Ferrari's disgruntlement, a Porsche in GTE Pro that took pole position. Again, Kevin Estra proving he is the man for qualifying a 145.4 to put the 92 championship leading Porsche ahead of the Ferrari. Uh, And then the same combination on the second row, 91 and 52. That was the Bruni and Leitz Porsche ahead of Daniel Serra and Miguel Molina. It was a pole position and a great drive again from Ben Keating. Remember, it's it has to be your bronze-rated driver in GTE Am out for qualifying. And uh, Keating managed to pip the also the championship leaders, Chetelar Racing, to pole position. And although it was a good lap in hypercar from the 36 Alpine, a 136.1, three-tenths of a second quicker for the number seven car of Conway, Kobayashi and Lopez to take another pole position ahead of Buemi, Nakajima and Hartley. So again, a Toyota front row. And just to complete the um, run through the classes, the 31 Team WRT crew took pole position in LMP2. Again, really at this point, Bruce, the Belgian squad hadn't got their season on track, but maybe this was an indication that they were they had been learning an awful lot and finally a bit of a breakthrough on that Saturday. It certainly looked that way. It looks like they, they were primed, ready to you know make their moves. This was going back to a six-hour format rather than the the eight we had at Portimao, so it matched the first race. And yeah, it, it seemed primed that the uh, the attack could could work from them, but so uh, had to wait and see. So uh, we went on to, into the race, and uh, amazingly, from memory, I think everyone got through the first corner. Um, through the chicane, but then there was a bit of carnage later on on that first lap. We had two Glickenhouses, by the way, by this point as well. So the 709 and the 708 uh, would be part of this event, and therefore five hypercars would be the most that we've got to to this season. I think we're we're not going to get much beyond that now either. It is five for the entry of the 24 hours of Le Mans. Um, But Toyota having taken two victories to this point you thought right this was their opportunity to really show how much reliability they have ahead of a 24-hour race and really the opposite was true particularly for car number eight. Oh, it was just extraordinary uh, how many well it seemed like well just to see the toyota stopped at the side of the track and kobayashi had to stop reboot everything to get it going again you thought oh my golly so the little problems we saw in the opening round at Spa-Francorchamps, are not sorted. And then throw into the mix the sister car, the number seven car, the Conway car, also had a puncture. That left Alpine in the lead. And they stayed there, and they stayed there, Johnny. And the thing was, well, on pure pace, the Alpine was incredibly quick, particularly down the long straight, out of the Parabolica and into the chicane. The hybrid, the modern-day hybrid on these Toyotas, 
kind of runs out of power when it gets to its um, to something like 170, 180 kph. And also, the, the strange thing is that the, the, the hybrid now only kicks in at 120 kilometers per hour rather than enabling that punch out of the slower corners as the old LMP1 car did. So it's very likely, I think, at Le Mans this year, down the Mulsanne, that certainly the Alpine, possibly even an LMP2 car, might be out, out, uh, maybe able to outpace the Toyota in the latter portions of those long straights. And um, the, the, that's a great benefit for the Alpine. The problem is, again, it's fuel tank size, which is only 75 litres, and therefore it was having to come in more frequently to get the top up. So, But, but we were always offered this intriguing, um, tantalising prospect of where would the chequered flag fall, particularly towards the end? Because would it be in one of those phases where the Toyota was outpacing, rather the Alpine was outpacing the Toyota, but wasn't yet at a point where it needed to pit? And we very nearly got there because we had this then going into the final stint, the fact that the, the, the leading Toyota car seven, we knew needed fuel and the Alpine did not. And the, the blue car doing the chasing was carrying more speed. Didn't happen in the end, but it was it was really fun to to witness that for the last uh, 40 minutes or so. Uh, and also worth pointing out, Johnny, of course, the number eight car just had a litany of problems, did it not? Because Al- uh, Hartley arrived at the first corner and, and the cameras didn't really catch it at the first attempt and he just went straight on. Mm. This is um, in the second hour of the six-hour race. Then it had fuel pressure problems. And just to see the, a Toyota sitting in a garage and, and, and having to be worked on furiously and, um, you know, Hartley was kept in the car, then got out of the car and it was back and forth. And this is not what we're accustomed to. But um, for Alpine, these must have been, it's not schadenfreude, but cheery sights that the Toyota is really having to press to try and stay ahead of it. Yes, it didn't take the victory. The second place was the best they could manage. But um, interesting days at the very top of um, the World Endurance Championship, it has to be said. And for Toyota, it's far from plain sailing. There was another great moment if you're if you're um, following the team from the United States, Glickenhaus, because uh, the seven car also had an issue as Bruce has dealt with coming into Ascari. That would put Roman Dumas into the lead of the race in the seven o nine Glickenhaus. Unfortunately, that was also going to be an in-lap into the garage with a, a problem then that uh, needed to be sorted out on the double o seven, but. It led, it led a lap of the race and, uh, you know, off the back of topping test day at Le Mans, these are actually very good times for Glickenhaus, it seems. Yes, I think what's been, been clear from the outset is the pace is there. They're, they're right on the money. But, of course, there are just so many things that can potentially go wrong and they're working through their checklist. But, yes, their form over the Le Mans test day, top of the charts, just reiterating it wasn't a fluke to be... Uh, right on the money at Monza, but to, to do it at Le Mans as well gives them a lot of hope. Yeah, that uh, pit stop was actually for an eight-minute break change, and that rather uh, put uh, pay to the, any chances of an outright podium. The 709 would eventually finish in fourth position behind the number 22 United Autosports LMP2 car because their winning continued uh, again. So they'd already taken victory in the opening round at Spa, and it was another win for Phil Hansen, Fabio Scherer and Philippe Albuquerque. Uh, 200 laps to their name. So only four shy of the overall winner. And there's just something perfect, really, about that not only driving combination, 
But I think uh, Gary Robertshaw and his team in the kind of uh, the um, chief engineer side of things and the, the guys that are working down there at United Autosports, something just absolutely bang on the money off the back of that season last year, whereby, you know, winning becomes a habit and it is definitely a habit with United. It really is. I mean, when, when talking about a challenge from Team WRT, you're thinking, yeah, but whatever you do, you have to beat what we just naturally assume. And it does take away a bit from all they achieve. The fact we just expect United Autosports, such has been their success in sports car racing for the past four years in particular, you expect them to win. If anybody else beats them, then they've had a really, really good run. But certainly for Phil Hansen, who lost his teammates, he didn't have Albuquerque and Shearer along with him at... Um, Portimao, but he had them back in third place overall. That's pretty epic. They would finish ahead of Team WRT, whose season was definitely then on track, and Racing Team Nederland, who are a pro-am entry. I haven't spoken a great deal, actually, about the, the two layers of LMP2 this year, but a new initiative, as it is in European Le Mans series as well, is to now have pro-am teams in LMP2. There was quite a bit of discussion, Bruce, as to whether LMP2 would go full-time to pro-am and therefore allow a bronze in uh, as per the regulations, but that would have left a number of professional drivers out of a chance to race. And that's particularly important with so many manufacturers just around the corner entering the World Endurance Championship. So you've got a lot of drivers that want to be on that prototype radar that would have been out of an opportunity. So I think it's the right decision to have the standard LMP2 driver lineup and then Pro-Am as an addition. I agree 100%, Johnny. I think um, always in, in sports car racing, whether it's prototypes or, or GT racing, I think you always need a strong Pro-Am element because... Uh, let's face it, when you get to years when some of the manufacturers aren't there, the people who really keep the sport going are the, we, we don't like using this term, but I'm just going to throw it in, gentlemen drivers. And a lot of them go on to really develop their form and become in, in time, you know, silver rank drivers. But yeah, it's good. And I think for a driver who's maybe hang, been in the World Endurance Championship, if they didn't get a drive for this year, as you say, the shop window goes. And then with the big guns, the manufacturers coming in or looking at, hypercar for the years ahead yeah it's a great shot window for them but it also adds another element element of interest you know you look down mm. the p2 class and it's been rock solid for the past handful of years but why not have another class within it because it, it just leads to different battles and for fritz van eerd for example of course he has fantastic teammates he's been getting better over the years but he's got something to aim for as a sideline effectively of course he'd like to win the p2 class outright and with the, the likes of Job van Utert and Guido van der Garde as his teammates, there's every chance that can happen. But what happens if we see race after race? Fritz doesn't have the ultimate pace, but he's a very good average. And that means he's got a chance of winning something rather than just being hauled back, um, you know, in the final sessions of the race, really. So a pro-am victory and, uh, yeah, to Fritz's delight, uh, an LMP2 overall podium if you get my drift as well so they would have been very very happy with that particularly because of a late driver change necessary Guido van der Garde ruled out through Covid so Paul-Luc Chatin brought in to the number 29 car in GTE Pro it was Kevin Estra and Neil Jani who took another victory in their Porsche 911 RSR 19 but this time from Ferrari and uh, Alessandro Pierguidi and James Collado very early on in the championship, and I realise still 50 points on offer in GT Pro, but it's almost between those two cars right now. We've only got four regular championship uh, entries 
in pro this year, but it looks like the 92 Porsche is so strong and come the race, the 51 Ferrari takes the fight to it. It really does. And you, you just feel for any one of those two combinations, the lead Porsche and the lead Ferrari, if they end up with a non-score in a race, it's really going to hurt them because, mm. of course, without a large field of cars in, in their class, it means whoever else does finish the race, they're getting a lot of points each race. So it's about keeping it on the straight and narrow. But I think this year in particular... Alessandro Pierguidi doesn't seem to matter what he gets into where he's racing a Ferrari he's doing really really well he's been great for years but I think he's almost found another level so mind you'd need that if you're taking on Kevin Estra and Neil Yarny as they are in the Porsche but I think it's a great battle of course we'd like to see more manufacturers in GTE Pro but these two certainly entertain us and a second win in GTE Am for the Rivera Perodo Nielsen combination in Ferrari number 83 from AF Corsa. So they have squeezed the points gap down to just two now to Antonio Fuoco, Giorgio Sonagiotto, and Roberto Lacorte, who just about lead the championship. But the guys in the 83 have very good form in this particular competition, and no surprise to see them taking victory in the home of Ferrari. Absolutely so. No, it's um, it's a great scrap. But really, the thing that I remember most of all about the GTE Am battle, it, it had Aston Martin all over it at, at Monza. And mm. uh, right to the end, well, first of all, we had the, the blowout for, for Ben Keating on the run to Ascari. Stayed out a lap too long, leading the class. So that was a real shame for them. But right at the end of the race, we had the Aston Martin racing entry, Agosto Farfus, against Tomonubu. Uh, for GE in the D-Station racing Aston, that was fantastic on the final lap, but Farfus took it, but it made amazing television. And for, 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 I guess, the real Aston Martin fans, they were thinking, this could end in a collision. It could end up with both cars going off the circuit. Fortunately, it didn't, but it was fantastic racing. Yeah, and that just shows you the calibre of drivers that are utilised late on in the race in GTE Am. Very much looking forward to the closing stints at Le Mans for that very reason. And the story of uh, hypercar, well, the eight car was nowhere, sadly, um, 43 laps down in the end from the sister machine. Number seven, getting its first win of the season, Mike Conway, Jose Maria Lopez, Kamui Kobayashi, and they have unfinished business, the seven crew, at the 24 Hours of Le Mans. Absolutely, they do. And I just think it's going to be so interesting. But the thing that really stands out to me is that Toyota has had its problems through the first three rounds of this year's WEC. And uh, it must be absolutely fingers crossed at Toyota Gazoo Racing that they don't have any more of those at Le Mans. Um, Because Alpine has proved really rock solid in this, Johnny, and really could have won at Monza if it wasn't uh, for what happened late in the race, really, that they couldn't get their, they got the number seven car, had a cheap, what we call a cheap pit stop. We got it under a full course yellow and uh, that brought them right back into the mix. Otherwise, we could have Alpine going to Le Mans with the win under its belt. Yeah, uh, it ran them close, definitely. And as you say, it would have been touch and go had that full course yellow not hit in the closing stages. So the scene is set then for round four of the FIA World Endurance Championship. Where is that again? Oh, yes, the 24 Hours of Le Mans, the 89th edition of the Endurance Classic. We have five cars in hypercar. We have 25 LMP2s. We have a whole load more GT Pros as well, including two Corvette C8Rs and two Porsche crews from the WeatherTech Sports Car 
Championship, the IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championship, and a massive amount of uh, GTE AM cars, 23 in total. There's going to be a race to observe somewhere in that order, if not in all four classes all at once. And hopefully that's given you a fair reflection on what has unfolded so far out of the three rounds of the FIA World Endurance Championship. My thanks to Bruce Jones. I'm Johnny Palmer. Join us for all of the coverage this week of the 24 Hours of Le Mans. This programme is a Radio Show Limited production. Tell your friends there's more at RadioLeMans.com.